0: Revelation chapter 2, and we're in our series, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, Our God Reigns, Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. We're looking at the second church our Lord Jesus Christ address among the seven churches of Asia Minor, now known as modern-day Turkey. And we're looking at the church called Smyrna. If you don't have a Bible, look around you. Your neighbor will share their Bible with you. And if you do not have a King James Version Bible, please let someone share their Bible with you. Say amen if you're there tonight. <laughs> and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead, and praise God he's alive. Amen. Amen. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty but thou art rich (laughs) and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not but of the synagogue of Satan fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer behold The devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. He that hath hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Go with me to verse 10. The title of our message comes right out of verse 10 tonight. We're looking at the thought, faithful unto death. Faithful unto death. Our Father, thank you tonight for no other reason, just loving us, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. That was shed vicariously and freely. It washes away our sins. Thank you, he is our savior. He is our Lord. He's our king of kings. And he's our Lord of lords. He's a great and high potentate. The only wise God. To whom be honor and glory forever and ever. I'm not sure what everybody's condition is tonight here. But I know, Lord, you want us better than what we came in at. And I know, Lord, tonight that when you wrote this letter to the church of Smyrna, you said, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. Help us tonight to hear the Holy Spirit of God. Help us not to be on a fence Help us, Lord, to be other than what this passage, this encouraging passage scripture speaks us about. Lord, I need enablement. I don't have what it takes. I need special grace, more grace, more power to be saturated with the spirit of God. Would you love your congregation tonight? Would you lift your congregation tonight? And would you lead us tonight? And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Serving God is a blessing. I love the ministry. I love serving the Lord. you feel loved like serving God? Amen. It's great serving our Lord. There are many things that are blessing. In fact, everything's a blessing. Cleaning's a blessing. Laborious work is a blessing. Praying is a blessing. Preaching's a blessing. Winning souls is a blessing, amen? All of that's a blessing. I mean, you name it, whatever it it takes, it's a blessing. But of the many things in ministry that are blessing, for me, uh, performing marriages is among my favorite. I enjoy doing marriages and helping young couples along the way. And as all of us know, the most solemn part of the ceremony are the wedding vows. The exchange of the vows is the sealing of the marriage covenant. We have to remind ourselves, a covenant is a promise that is not to be broken. A covenant is a lifetime commitment. When the Jews practiced a covenant, even pagans, they did what was called the cutting of the covenant. They would take these animals and lay them on two sides. And the parties to the covenant, they, it was called the cut the covenant. They would kill these animals and there would be blood along the way as they did so, they passed through that. They gave signification of their allegiance to this, this thing. And, and they would not break it and stay with it. And so a covenant's a very important thing. And, you know, marriage vows, more, probably the most important thing about the, the ceremony beyond everything else is that covenant. The exchanging of those vows. I mean, that is to be kept. That is a very solemn thing there. And I always ask the, the couple that I marry, I said, now, would you like to repeat after me? Or would you like to write your own vows? And always remind those who want to write their vows, there's certain things you need to have in those vows that signify that it's a covenant. It's, you know, marriage is not a cute picture story, and it's not, a, it's not look at us on that type of day. It's, it's sealing under the presence of God something that's very special and very holy. And we do a covenant. I'm thinking about one that we did not too long ago. And the bride said this to the groom. She said, uh, or the groom said this to the bride, He called her by name, he said, I love you. I take you today to be my wife. As your husband, I promise to love you exclusively and with all my heart to honor you, to encourage you, to protect you, and allow nothing to interfere with our relationship together. I promise to be the leader of our home, the loving father of our children, your best friend, and companion through life, whether in sickness or in health, rich or poor, good times and bad times, and listen to this, until death do us part. Amen. Romans chapter 7 tells us that the marriage covenant can only be broken, biblically broken, at death. As we get to our study in 1 Corinthians, and I'll try to take some time on this, but 1 Corinthians 7 Outlines for us what God has to say about marriage, divorce, remarriage, separation, all of those kind of things. And contrary to what a lot of people think, that there was divorce during Jesus' day. And there was divorce during Moses' day. In fact, that's why we have Deuteronomy 24. I'll get into that. It's not a loophole for people, amen? But we have to understand tonight, as we look at this, the statement, the solemnness, and, 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 and if you weren't here Wednesday night, please get my message Wednesday night on biblical separation, because I said some things from Second from Corinthians 6 that are essential for that, for you to understand that. But, but that phrase I want you to focus on tonight is they said, "Unto death do us part, unto God's holy ordinances.'" And then, of course, the, the bride to the groom would say something very similar. And she would say, she would say, as she'd go through, "I promise to be by your side as your help me, the loving mother of our children, and to be your best friend and encourager, when there's sickness or health, rich or poor, good times or bad times, until death do us part." Revelation chapter two. Our Lord Jesus Christ told this church at Smyrna. In verse ten, He said, "Be thou faithful unto death." Smyrna was 40 miles north of Ephesus. It was one of the Ionian cities of Asia Minor, now known as modern-day Turkey. Today it is known, it's still in existence, but it's known as the city of Izmir. It was a major trade port. competed with Ephesus for prominence. Smyrna was called a flower or an ornament. In some places it was called the crown of all Asia. Some called it and nicknamed it the city which was called beautiful because it was beautiful. Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh is an aromatic spice that is used for embalming and has a special connotation to death and especially our Lord Jesus Christ. And Smyrna was the location where some church planters went, praise God, planted a New Testament Baptist church. And may I say an independent Baptist church, amen? A so many church. A church interested in piercing the darkness and winning souls to Jesus Christ there. And this church is the location of a, lo- of a place, a church, that Jesus addressed by a letter here in verse 8. Now I want you to see some things about this church that should encourage us. This church <coughs> and the church in Philadelphia, the only two churches that Jesus said, I do not have anything against you. You find no criticism. We find no rebuke. It's a commended church. It was an encouraged church. It was a church that Jesus loved. It's a model church. It's a biblical church. It was a suffering church. We want to see this church as Jesus spoke to it is that this is kind of where we're at right now. And where we want to be in terms of just the encouragement the Lord gives us. And So I want you to see some things tonight about this church and the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, would you notice in verse eight we see the singular excellence. As we begin this letter, we must remind ourselves the focus, starting off this letter, is not on the church, but the focus is on the one writing the letter, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? And we want to remind ourselves as we come to church, the focus is not on the preacher necessarily, and the focus is not on the choir, and the focus is not on you, and the focus is not on our facilities and our building, the focus is Jesus Christ, Amen? Take away the buildings and take away the chairs and take away the sound equipment and take away all of those things. And listen, church, you can still have a good church service because everything focuses around Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 8, unto the angel, or to the pastor, of the representative, the spiritual leader of the church of Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Before the pastor and the church receives its message in this passage of Scripture, and in every passage of Scripture, we must remind ourselves the church is called upon to acknowledge the one who is giving the message. And may we just a moment for tonight, take a moment this evening, to acknowledge Jesus Christ, that He's sovereign God, that He's Lord of Lords, and that He's King of Kings, and he's the great shepherd of the sheep who through the blood of the everlasting covenant shed his blood for every one of us and he's the chief shepherd and bishop of our souls and we must acknowledge tonight that more important than anything else being elevated when we leave tonight the one, number one person elevated in this church service is Jesus Christ our savior. And so we see Jesus in verse eight we see him in his preeminence. Notice it says here these things saith the first and the last. Preeminence speaks to the fact that Jesus is the so one that should have our adoration. That Jesus is unrivaled, he's unparalleled, he's unequal to anybody else. No one compares to Jesus. It speaks to the fact that he's above all and emphasized the fact that he's creator God and emphasize the fact that he's commander God. I read the story of a lady by the name of Pam Sneddon. She took a class in photography back before the digital, digital days of photography. And the, 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 She was given an assignment like everyone else in that class, and they were to take this picture and to do certain things with it. And so for assignment, she, she thought, well, you know what? I think what I'm going to do is I'll choose my six-year-old daughter and choose her for the, the portrait that I want to take and as the subject. And so he took, she he took her little six-year-old daughter and found a very serene, beautiful hillside. And they lived out by the, they were out by the countryside, and next to that hillside, she saw this beautiful, beautiful full-bloom uh, apple tree that was in this orchard next to it, and she thought, well, you know, that would be such a great picture. I have my six-year-old daughter right here and this apple tree right right there, and so she positioned it with her wide-angle lens in such a way that she got a picture that encompassed both her daughter, her six-year-old daughter, which was supposed to be the primary subject of the picture, and this apple tree. When she brought the picture in, as everyone else did for the class assignment, she presented it to her teacher, and the instructor immediately said, Pam, you got I have a problem with this picture. And Pam was thinking, what are you talking about? My my daughter was in it, It it's a beautiful picture, and she said, no, no, I have a problem with this picture. She said, the apple tree in this picture was distracting from the primary focus of the little girl. And the teacher said, look at, I want you to look at this picture. And she says, now we see your daughter, but you can't help but see this, this apple tree. It's in full bloom. And she said, you see, you need to choose one subject and leave the other out. And preeminence is you need to choose Jesus and leave everything out, amen? You choose Jesus Christ only and leave everything else out. That's preeminence. We have to remind ourselves, in all things, he is to have the preeminence. It doesn't matter what the program may be, and it doesn't matter what the event might be. We need to choose one thing, and that is Jesus Christ, that he is to be, excels everything else. We need to choose him and leave everything else out. Notice we see his preeminence, but notice something else in verse 8. We see his power. And he's writing to a church, as we see, which would experience not just persecution, but would experience martyrdom. He said here in verse 10 that some of them would be cast into prison, that they may be tried. As we'll see tonight, we know that even some of their leaders were put to death. And he represents himself as which was dead and is alive. And we're reminded as we read through the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ is the keys to hell and death. And Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. And nothing speaks more powerfully of our Lord Jesus Christ than the matchless power of our Savior as he was raised from the dead. But I remind you tonight that the enemies of Christianity, they would rather have Jesus dead. And if Satan had his druthers, he would rather have Jesus dead. And if humanism could have its way, would want Jesus dead. And I can tell you in our secular classrooms in these public schools and public universities, they, they advocate and they preach that Jesus is dead. This world wants Jesus dead, but I want to tell you, he's alive. And humanism wants him dead, but I'll tell you, he's alive. And I'll tell you tonight, the devil wanted him dead when he put him on the cross, but praise God, he rose again from the dead. He's alive. He was dead, but he's alive this evening. And don't you walk around with a mopey face and a discouraged outlook on life. Jesus Christ is alive. Don't get yourself discouraged there. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, and he talks with me along life, a narrow way. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Listen tonight. Let's rejoice that Jesus Christ is alive. Amen. Amen. And so we see the singular excellence of our Savior, that in His power and His preeminence. But notice number two tonight. We go to verse nine, and we not only see a singular excellence, but you notice the sympathetic examination. Christ our Savior says, I know. He says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I'm thankful tonight Jesus sympathizes with us, amen? He knows all about our trials. He knows all about our troubles. He knows if we've given our best, we've done all that we can, and he sympathizes with that. Notice in verse 9, Jesus knew all about their service. Jesus said, I know thy works. Jesus knew every work and ministry that church had. Jesus knew those who were counting the offerings this afternoon. Jesus knows those who came early this morning and got in their bus routes and their buses and vans and picked up passengers. Jesus knew this week Sunday school teachers who labored in preparing their lessons. Jesus knew this week the time that Brother Vaughn and some of our AV guys spent prepping, getting ready, and doing sound checks and a number of things they had to make sure everything works and is operational. Hey, Jesus knows tonight we've got nursery workers that would just as soon be in this service tonight, but they're lovingly taking care of some of the little babies and children. we we'll praise God for that. And Jesus knows our peewee and patch workers that are working with the children, and Jesus knows tonight those will stay behind. The last ones that will be here to close up and lock up and check everything to make sure the water's turned off and nothing's on and lights are turned off and doors are locked and security is on, and they'll go home much later than most other people that will already be leaving when church is over. I'm going to tell you tonight, Jesus knows our works. He knows those who came to so many, those who didn't go to so many. He knows those who've been praying and those who've not been praying. He knows those who are giving and those who are not giving. He knows who are prepared for the orchestra and choir, and he knows those who couldn't do that. He knows all about the. And I want to tell you tonight, Jesus knows our service. He knows you've given him your best. He knows you've poured yourself out. He knows that you've spent yourself in the Lord. I just want to encourage you tonight, if he knows about the, all about that, don't quit on the Lord. Amen. Don't leave on the Lord. Jesus knows your work. Don't sit on the sidelines. He knows what you're doing. Don't do very little. Don't fall out on the Lord. He knows your work. He says, I know thy work. He knows their service. But notice in verse 9, he also knows their suffering. I think some of us were so insecure about our walk with God. We forget He knows all about our suffering. And in verse 9, he says, I know thy works. And he said, Your tribulation. Your poverty, but thou are rich. There were the pressures. There were tribulations that they had with their families. And you look at, as you study the New Testament, the believers there, they had troubles. You read over in Hebrews chapter 10, you read about believers whose goods were spoiled, properties were confiscated, lost their jobs. Were displaced and had to move to other parts of the Middle East to live because of their their their, for to escape persecution for their faith. They were ostracized by family members. They were hated by family members, by Jewish family members, who because of their faith and and maybe they were of Grecian background, Roman background. They accepted Christ and they were rejected by their family. Jesus said, "I know all about those things." Some had health trials. Some had economic trials. And he speaks about the poverty of this church. You know, some have nicknamed this church, this is the poor church that really was rich. And we look at the church at See, when we get to that, that's church number seven, that was the rich church that was really poor. And I remind you tonight that when we think we're poor in spirit, we're really rich in Jesus Christ. When Jacob wrestled with the angel, and the angel broke his hip and he was disabled, and said, I want to tell you tonight, he was more richer then than he was before that hip was broken. I want to tell you tonight, when Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael were passed into that fiery furnace because they took a stand for Jesus Christ, they said, we will not bend, we will not bow, we won't, we would do, you won't throw us in the fire. Listen, they were far richer when they came out of that furnace than before they went into that furnace. I want to tell you, when you have tribulations and trials and situations, they're beyond your control, and all you can do is trust in God and believe in God, you're much more richer through that than you were before those trials came. There were the pressures, but notice there was the Persecution. This was a persecuted church. Look what he says in verse 9 and 10. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. The Jews hated Christianity. In fact, the Jews, they stirred up the pagans. They stirred up the Gentiles against the believers. They created a mob mentality. Hysteria. And paranoia against the Christian faith. They were blaming them for that. So I know the blasphemy of them would say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. He says, literally, they are the assemblies of the devil. They assemble together. They're not assembling there for the worship of God and for the praise of God. And they're not, doing, they're not good Jews in heart. He says, really, I will tell you because they blaspheme God in their works and blaspheme God in their deeds. He says, basically, they're the synagogue of the devil there. But Jesus said they were rich. Paul said this in Second Corinthians 6.10. Listen to this. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Henry Morrison and his wife, among the early missionaries who labored in the fields of Africa. They had no one that preceded them. I mean, they paved their own roads, just like David Livingston did. And Henry Morrison and his wife had gotten to a place in their life where their health was broken They didn't have mission boards in those days or churches that really understood the concept of taking care of their missionaries. Their health became so poor. Their situation became such it was recommended to them to come back home. They boarded a ship on that long journey back. They were thinking about what were they going back to? No job, no money, no pension. Nobody in America would know them. Where would I preach to serve God? And quite honestly, Henry Morrison was broken. He was discouraged, and quite honestly, he was bitter. And he turned his wife, As every day they would go out, and they would just kind of stand over the ship railing, and would look over, and just all they would see, miles and miles and miles of ocean. And as soon as the land became distant, in the distance, they realized they were approaching New York Harbor, They looked at it from a large distance and he said to his wife in a sarcastic manner, he said, you know, I wonder if there'll be anybody there to meet us when we arrive. The ship got closer and closer. They started to hear the sound. And they heard the sound of a band that was playing, an orchestra that was playing, and the tears of people. And Henry Morrison kind of lit up at that time and he thought, honey, he said, maybe they haven't forgot us. Maybe they did remember we've been on the field for all these years and there's some people that have assembled to hear us and they got a band and an orchestra together and they they were playing on there and they said, maybe they've remembered us and then she said, honey, I don't think it's for us. She said, did you know that President Theodore Roosevelt is on this ship as well? And Theodore Roosevelt had been in Africa as well there too and he'd been on one of his many hunting expeditions. He came back with many of his trophy catches that he had. As they got a little closer in sight they saw the banners the signs of welcome home, Mr. President. Welcome home. Henry Morrison was a very bitter man. He didn't say anything. They waited till the president, his entourage came off the ship. His prize, hunting trophies. They walked off that ship. Everybody acknowledged Teddy Roosevelt and everybody else that was with him but nobody knew who Henry Morris and his wife were. They walked around the streets of New York for a few days and literally were homeless for a couple days there, till they found the cheapest place they could rent, which was in a bad part of town. So they settled into their room. He just let loose. He wasn't wasn't mean to his wife or anything like that. He said, honey, this is what he said, it's not fair. We've given our life serving God. We've given our best. We're in places nobody else has gone to. We've been at the frontiers of Africa. Souls have been saved and churches been started. Nobody's here to meet us. Nobody cares what we've done. It's not fair that Teddy Roosevelt goes there and kills an animal. And I'm not taking anything away from the fact he's president but he goes and kills that couple of animals. He comes back and they greet him. What about us? His wife was very calm. And thank God for a calm wife. Amen. She said, "Honey, I think um, I think you need to go to the bedroom and you need to go tell God about it." He was a little reluctant, but he went to the bedroom. It was only one bedroom apartment. He closed the door quietly and she could hear him as he got on his knees and wrestled with God. He was in there for a period of time and he gingerly turned the doorknob and walked out and this is what he said. He said, the Lord settled with me. I told God how bitter I was that the president came home and had all these people here to greet him. God took care of that and she said, well, what did God tell you? He said, honey, the Lord came alongside of me and put his arm on my shoulder. And he said, he said, Henry, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. And I want to tell you tonight, you're not home yet either. There's still more to do. Amen? And this man, this man who thought he suffered, he was reminded of a Savior who says, I know thy works. And I want to tell you, for some who are tonight, Nobody knows who you are. You're probably, you think you're very insignificant. Nobody knows what you're doing. You're not looking for a pat on the back. You're just faithfully serving God. You always have a smile on your face. You always love Jesus. You're not interested in receiving awards and accolades and all those kind of things. You're just serving. May I tell you tonight, God knows who you are. God knows who you are. He knows your service. And some of you here tonight who are going through great suffering In difficulties and trials, you're not even sure tomorrow how to even wake up. He knows you're suffering. He knows where you're at. I'm just saying tonight, we have the sympathetic examination of our Savior. And I'm thankful for that tonight. We see a third thing this evening. We see the singular excellence. We the sympathetic examination. I want you to notice, verse 10, the Lord's sustaining exhortation. Now, when Jesus spoke to them, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the church of Smyrna. Because the church of Smyrna represents the persecuted church, the suffering church. The 10 days that is mentioned here, some would say that the 10 days represents 10 periods of Roman empires. 10 Roman emperors in which the church suffered, and they did through all those emperors. Some would say, probably more correctly, that the 10 days represents the fact that suffering will come, but suffering has an end. Praise God for that, amen? That there's a duration. It's not forever. And, but he talks to a church that was discouraged, that was hurting, because he said, I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. He knew the pressures they faced, he knew what was going on. And I want you to understand tonight, as we look at verse 10, I want you to understand what preceded the suffering of the church at Smyrna. Because I want you to understand that the Apostle John, as he wrote this epistle, the Apostle John is the last and remaining member of the original 12 that was called by Jesus Christ. He's 90 years of age, he'd been cast into a, a cauldron of boiling oil, as I understand from from history there, that he survived that. He came out of it unscathed, praise God. And when he did so, in that accompaniment of all these people that were cheering him, that were jeering him, these people, they saw that he came out. They recognized God's hand was on him. And many repented of their sins and called on Jesus Christ to save them. And this same man was now exiled on the island of Patmos. He was on a prisoner' aisle writing this letter here. And he's the last of these men. And you have to understand that John is writing to them about some things to happen that will happen in the future. And at that time, a colleague, of his a contemporary of his was a man by the name of polycarp and polycarp was trained by the apostle john and and he rubbed soldiers with some of the great apostles of that time and the great leaders of the church history of that time and and so you have to understand as john is writing this right now that this is before polycarp would die but leading into that was the apostles who were dying i want to remind you tonight of some of the sufferings that occurred with the forerunners that led to this writing of this letter there i think about stephen who's the first martyr he was stoned and his colleagues, Nicanor and Parsimus, who also suffered for the faith. And James, the, who see, we're told in Acts chapter 12, who was killed by the sword. And Thomas, who was downing Thomas, they called him, who was slain by the dart or by a spear. And Simon the Zealot, who was crucified. And Simon Peter, who was crucified upside down. And Paul, who was beheaded. And Andrew, who was crucified on a cross that was the shape of an X. And Thomas, who was killed by the thrust of the spears of four different soldiers thrusting him at one time. And Matthew, who was stabbed to death. And Bartholomew, who was beaten with stabs and then crucified, then beheaded. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, who was stoned, then clubbed to death. And Matthias was burned to the stake. And there was one who they took, and he went to India, and they dragged him through the streets, and then they threw him off the top of a building. And all of these things. And John now is in a cadre, what John, as I mentioned, suffered. All of these men have suffered. These were men who had preceded the day. They knew very well the acceptance of Jesus Christ and found the Lord in scriptural baptism. And living for God there's a price to pay there would be suffering and Peter wrote about that in around 80 61 80 62 as he wrote first and second Peter as he warned them about the suffering that would come I mean those believers during that time they lived with the imminency of knowing that there would be suffering that you'd suffer the hey listen we have it so easy today we just tell people about the gospel story and they they hear and they listen they receive Jesus Christ as savior but I'm going to tell you to receive Jesus Christ back in that first century that made that meant a lot of suffering that meant just a lot of hardships that you'd go through and you You have to understand tonight. We have it really easy. We have it really good. But in those days, to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you were putting down a clear line of demarcation that you were saying that I trust Jesus only. That I'm willing to go to the stake. I'm willing to be killed. I'm willing to be drowned. Whatever it may be. I remind you tonight there was great suffering back in those days. Ignatius, who was one of the forerunners before Polycarp, the great preachers of his day, was the Roman government had taken him and they. Had him stopped through Smyrna as they made his way back to the Roman Empire, and the Emperor Trajan decided in 108 A.D. that he would kill Ignatius. They brought him to the Roman Colosseum, and they had these hungry lions that were there. They said, "Do you have anything last thing to say?" And Ignatius said, "This: I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread." I pray that ever happens to you and me, we can have that same kind of faith, that same kind of courage as he did. And Polycarp, who was later on, just a few years after this epistle was written, under the persecution of Marcus Aurelius in 162 AD, he was a close friend of the Apostle John and mentored by the Apostle John. On the day of his death, the proconsul came to Polycarp and said, Swear, and I'll release thee. Reproach, Jesus Christ. And Polycarp, it's recorded in history, made this powerful statement. Eighty and six years have I served him and he never once wronged me. How then should I blaspheme my king who has saved me? I want you to think of me tonight. He said at 86 years of age, 86 years I have served him and he's done me. He's and, I, and he's never done me wrong. How then should I blaspheme him? He was faithful to the Lord. He was faithful unto death. What do you say to a church that is about to face persecution where well, our Lord Jesus Christ said in verse 10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, and he said, the devil shall cast some of you in prison that you may be tried. I want you to understand tonight that that's how the devil look to some of these foreign countries. I want you to understand tonight, if you, if you serve Jesus in India, you risk, you risk the devil having you killed. I want to tell you, if you're in Sri Lanka, you'd risk the devil killing you. I want to tell you tonight, if you go to Indonesia and, and you preach the gospel in Indonesia, in that Muslim-dominated country, you risk the devil killing you. I remind you tonight, you go into China with all the things going on there and you try to preach the gospel, you're in a government system that you risk being killed. And there are places around this world where they're just very hostile to Christianity. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ made the statement, to this church and he makes a statement to us. He said to us in verse 10, he said, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. And then he said in verse 10, be thou faithful unto death. He said, be thou faithful unto death faithful. The Bible says most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. The Bible says it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Our Lord Jesus Christ comes to a faithful church, and he says, listen, I want to encourage you, be thou faithful unto death. He says it doesn't matter what the persecution is, and it doesn't matter who's on the throne, and it doesn't matter who's the president. Be thou faithful unto death. And I want to tell you tonight as a church, as we are in our 21st year, and as we try to serve Jesus Christ, and as we try to permeate this area with the gospel as we consider world missions which is at a crisis right now it takes almost 10 independent Baptist churches to produce one missionary and one independent Baptist missionary to go on the foreign field. And if we consider missions, we still have this 60% 60 of the world is found in that 1040 window, and very little has been permeated there with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank God for the Edgar Fergalis, but there's a time in coming where the Edgar Fergalis are going to be off the field. And we need to understand tonight, the the gospel message still needs to be promoted. And we have to understand tonight, as much as we're in this area, San Leandro, the Bay Area, this area needs Jesus Christ. And I wanna say this evening, as we consider serving in Sunday school, as we consider serving in the A V ministry, as we consider serving as a choir member, as we consider serving in the orchestra, as we consider serving in the nursery, as we consider serving in some capacity, maybe as a deacon or as a as a leader in some capacity, as a club sponsor, and giving up your Friday nights and being here. I understand, young couples, you'd rather have Friday night as a date night, and you'd rather just chill out on Friday night because you've labored and worked all week long, and you'd rather have that. But I want to tell you tonight, I can't think of a better investment on a Friday night than to stay with some teenagers, and to stay with some college students, and to have a Bible study here and there, and to have some evangelistic meetings, and to realize that you don't know there might be a Hudson Taylor in that group there. There might be a young man God's going to call to preach, and there might be a young man looking to you that their faith hangs by a thread, by just seeing you there week after week after week, and seeing your faithfulness. I remind you tonight, whatever ministries we have, whatever ministries we start, we need to be people that are faithful unto death. Be faithful in Sunday school. Be faithful in choir ministry. Be faithful in your church attendance. be faithful in your tithing. Be faithful in faith promise mission. Be faithful in the orchestra. Be faithful in the nursery. Be faithful as an usher. Be faithful as a counter. Be faithful as a deacon. Be faithful as a Christian. Be faithful in your marriage. Be faithful to your parents. I'm saying tonight, we live in a time where people just want to quit and they want to leave and walk away. But I say to tonight, be thou faithful unto death. I'm not quitting. I'm not quitting. Be faithful. Get into it. Don't get don't retire. Get refired. Get revived. Dr. <laughs> Arby Ouellette's father Ken Ouellette, Most people will never know him. I had the privilege meeting him about ten or twelve years ago at a spiritual leadership conference. RB Ouellette's a blessing to our church, amen. I'm so thankful that he consented graciously for all these years to be our special speaker at every anniversary. <laughs> but I tell you, there's an arbulette because of a canoulette. canulet back in the day when Bob Jones University was a thriving, fiery, soul winning, preacher sending, preacher training, Missionary sending Institution, under Bob Jones Sr., the founder. Ken let trained there. Ken Ouellette was like many of those men in his graduating class, he left that place with a fire in his bones, went out started a church. And Ken Ouellette went out and started churches and for many years after that, God led him to the state of Michigan and for many years he started and led the Detroit Rescue Mission. You've heard Brother Lett preach about that many times. A couple years ago, Ken Ouellette went home to be the Lord. Ken Ouellette was a soul winner to the day of his death. I've asked God, I said, Lord, if Jesus tarries, if I'm going to die a natural death, Lord, help me be a soul winner until I die. That sounds foreign to you, but you need to get around some of my friends like Dr. Ed Lorena. You need to get around some of his people. They just recently had an all church soul winning on a Sunday night service. 1,700 people saved. They've covered their whole city of San Pedro with the gospel. And I want to tell you, their track is a simple back and front, black and white, people got saved. Yeah. And they said this about Ken Ouellette. He spent his life sharing the good news and fishing for men. That's a good epitaph, amen? He spent his life sharing the good news and fishing for men. I'm just saying tonight, be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be in your place. Be faithful in having joy. Be faithful in serving. Hey, tonight, you have an opportunity, when we're done with this service, you have an opportunity tonight to enlist and decide you're going to make time to be at the workers' conference. That's for the whole church. Everybody, all of God's people should be working. All of God's people should be serving. Read, read back in Second Thessalonians 3, we're at this past Wednesday night. If we're not doing that, we're busybodies, we're wasting time, we're slothful, and we're, the fields are slothful, there's hedges and briars and thorns that grow over it. Be busy serving God. I'm busy making sacrifices. <laughs> Be faithful unto death, don't quit on God, don't quit on me, don't quit on your church. Don't get weary and well doing. Our Lord says, again this sustaining exhortation. I know it gets hard. I know it gets hard. I know it gets discouraging. But Jesus said, I know thy works. I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews. He knows our service. He knows our suffering. As we close, I want you to see one last thing. I want you to notice a special exaltation. (laughs) When Jesus spoke, verse 10, I really think that the church at Smyrna those members were like, Jesus, thank you. Because they need to be reminded, don't be afraid. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Be thou faithful unto death. And faithfulness includes your doctrine. Be a faithful Baptist. Be a faithful Baptist. Okay? This is not a Presbyterian church. This is not a Bible church. It's not a community church. It's a Baptist church. As far as I'm concerned, the only kind of church is a biblical church is a Baptist church. and independent Baptist for that, amen? You ought to say, I'm a Baptist with a capital B. Long time after I'm gone, don't you put a pastor in here that's not a Baptist. An independent Baptist for that matter. But Jesus said here to this church, he wanted to commend them and he wanted to encourage them. He wanted them to have a vision for the future. And he has a special exaltation. Notice in verse 10, he speaks to them about a prize. A prize. I was a kid growing up. I liked to get those Cracker Jack boxes. How many remember that? Amen? Those Cracker Jack boxes, my grandmother used to spank the fire out of me because they, I would go and open these Cracker Jack boxes with a little kid, and she'd find all of these Cracker Jack boxes open in the back of her inventory room, and they knew it was me because there was no other kid around, amen? And they know there was no rat big enough to open it the way it was open. I didn't open it for the Cracker Jack. I wanted the prize inside of it, amen? A little hokey, little plastic prizer, but that was what the kids did in those days, the Lord said, I've got a prize for you. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, the crown of life is mentioned twice in Scripture. It's here in James 1.12. We're going to read that in a moment. Did you know that first century, the crown of life, everybody knew what the crown of life was? But they had to be reminded, just like you and me, because as we get discouraged, we have to remind ourselves, we are working to have gold, silver, and stones that when it's tried by fire, it will pass to fire. And crowns that will lay at Jesus' feet. And James said this about that crown of life. John did not have to give an explanation. They knew what it was. In fact, James' letter was circulating at that time, so most likely they read it at that time. He said this in James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. That's very simple. Keep on loving Jesus, there's a crown of life. Amen. Just keep your focus on Jesus. Don't let your heart get crusty and stale. Don't get negative and mean and crusty about things. He says, keep your heart on fire about Jesus. He says, blessed is the man that endures temptation. He's just saying, listen, endure the trials, endure the suffering, endure the heartache, endure the gossip, endure the criticism, endure all those different things. And he says here, he says, listen, the Lord has promised this crown of life to them that love him. Crowns are God's recognition for those who finish well. Crowns are what we'll cast to Jesus' feet. If you haven't figured this out, you better have some crowns so when you get to eternity, you can put him at the feet of Jesus Christ, amen. amen? Must I go and empty-handed, the songwriter said. He said, I'll give thee a crown of life. He's saying this church, I know you're exasperated, I know you're suffering, I know you, you, feel, you feel like you can't make it, but he says, stay with it. Be faithful unto death. And he says, I will give thee this crown of life. He says, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. But he didn't just talk about a prize. Notice in verse 11, he talks about a preservation. And he closes by saying this, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now this is a message for all the churches. This is a message for us. It's 21st century, but it's still relevant. He that overcometh. And I said this last time we were looked at the church of Ephesus. You want to find frequently in the book of Revelation, especially these chapters 2 and 3, the word overcome is that word, "nikeo," or where we get our word Nike from. To overcome. To be a conqueror. He that overcometh. He that's a Nike Christian. Amen? Hear what the Spirit says. Don't, don't tune the Holy Spirit out. Every message that is preached from God's Word, the Spirit of God is speaking. See, I don't like the speaker. No, but you better love the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. You better listen to the Spirit of God. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Now tonight, I'm gonna encourage you. Be an overcomer and don't be overcome. Be a conqueror, but don't be conquered. Be a victor, but don't be a victim. Be a winner, don't be a loser. Serve Jesus. He that overcometh. It's up to you to decide if you're going to overcome. It's up to you decide you're going to decide that you're on the winning side. Thank God, Curtis Hudson, before cancer overtook him, he's saying, I'm on the winning side. Amen? But he says he shall not be heard of the second death. Now, does it, what does that mean? Well, the second death is everlasting punishment. Read over in Revelation chapter 20 that death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I have the saying I use when I, when I witness people. You're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you only die once, amen? And so we have to think about tonight, if you're not saved, if you never trusted Jesus Christ your Savior, you will face that second death. You'll be at that great wine throne judgment as death and hell are cast in that lake of fire forever and ever. And the second death is worse than the first death. It's that eternal separation. I mean, when you talk about death and hell being cast into that lake of fire, that is bad. That's a very bad place. It's a very, very bad punishment there. Every, every believer, our suffering in this life is nothing compared to those who will suffer the second death, to spend all of eternity in that lake of fire. And we can be of good cheer, he says here in verse 11, that we will not be hurt by the second death. He just gives encouragement. The he says, I know you're suffering, I know you're pain. I know you're troubled, but he says, I want you to understand, there's a, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a suffering that's worse than all that. That's the suffering of the second death. And you will not suffer any of those things there. He says, he that overcometh, he shall not suffer any of the things of that second death. He's just encouraging us that, you know what, the second death is for those who reject Jesus Christ. But you haven't rejected me. You're in love with me, and you're going to get that crown of life. And I'm just saying tonight, aren't you thankful tonight that God always reminds us that it's not going to be worse, it's only going to get better for the Christian? He that overcometh shall not be hurt. Remind you, for faithful believers, and this is found over in the parable of the stewards. The words you and I want to hear from our Lord as we enter into His presence. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter to the joy of thy Lord. So we're the story. I'll close with this tonight. There's a man. His name was Joseph Gantt. He was a sergeant first class in the U.S. Army. He fought in World War II and the Korean War. They laid him to rest in December of 2013. It was a very unusual military funeral. During the Korean War, he was captured. They estimate he probably died in 1950, but his body was not returned until 2013. His death was never confirmed until his body was recovered. Before he left to serve our country, in World War II and then the Korean War, he married a beautiful young woman by the name of Clara. He told Clara, if I, something happens to me, go ahead and remarry. Clara never got confirmation that Joseph had died in North Korea. She waited for decades. In fact, even when the first news came out that something happened to him, she had great optimism that he'd come back. She went to meetings regularly with government officials about information, what had happened. In good faith, she even went out with what little savings they had, and houses were affordable in those days. With little savings yes, She bought a little bungalow house and bought in both their names, waiting in anticipation that he come back. And she did a bunch of work on it. She had landscaping done. She went, she went to work, had a job. She saved money. She had the landscaping done. She had a beautifully interior design. She bought furniture she knew that he would love. And she did all this with the idea. All I want him to do is when he comes home, I just want him to come home and be with me and enjoy the house. I mean, what a great wife. And she waited all those years. I don't want to remind you, 1950, 1950. She's 94 years old. 94 years old. When his remains came home, (laughs) the reporter went to her and said, "You could have remarried. Why didn't you?" She said, "No, I'm still his wife. And I made a statement to him. I made him a promise. I'm his wife." and I'll remain his wife until the day the Lord calls me home. You count the years from 1950 to 2013. Faithful unto death. John Huss, one of our great preachers of days gone by, the day they put him at the stake, he said this, I seal with my blood what I've spoken with my lips, and they burned him at the stake. Forty-two years of age, faithful unto death. I pray that our generation does not have to endure suffering or persecution. I pray the rapture will come during our lifetime. But should it come, should suffering come, and difficulties come, fear none of those things which thou shall suffer but be thou faithful unto death. Don't quit, re-enlist. Don't resign, re-sign. Get fired up, get involved, enroll in so many. We're just weeks away from this Easter special. Would you help me reach, to have 1500 people in attendance at all of our, all of our events that, that, during that weekend? Would you help us reach more people to the gospel? Would you help us in saying the gospel, events? would you get behind, we give the pleas and acknowledge and tell the church, hey, we're about to help this missionary, this church over here in, in a foreign country to get something else started. Would you come alongside of that? Would you, would you decide this year to even begin praying about faith promise in August of this year and what you'll do in faith promise as we seek and to endeavor to do more for the Lord? Would you pray about our Bay Area for, for us to just do more for Jesus Christ? I'm just saying tonight, be thou faithful unto death. I know it gets hard and I know we get tired. And I know there's other things we want to do. And I know a lot of times the church calendar conflicts with our personal calendar. I understand all that, okay? And we we try our best to try to work around it. But I want to tell you tonight, be thou faithful unto death. Be faithful to God. Don't quit on the Lord. Stay at this thing. Don't let let people discourage you. Don't let let bad things discourage you. Just be faithful to death unto our Lord Jesus Christ. And realize tonight, he says, there's a crown of life for those who love him.